I want to do is offer a kind of uh, tour d'horizon. Uh, I'm going to paint with broad brush strokes. I'm going to start my story in 1972 for reasons I'll explain in a moment. So almost not quite 50 years ago. And uh, bring you up to date uh, on uh, end of life issues and in particular focusing on what in Canada we call MAID, uh, medical assistance in death. That encompasses both physician assisted suicide or assisted, medically assisted suicide and, uh, and mercy killing. So, what I want to do is describe to you from where we've come and where we are now, and some rather dramatic changes are about to occur in Canada. There's a new bill that's just been introduced in Parliament, though it's on hold during the pandemic, uh, where we're likely to be heading. And along the way, I'm going to chart or mention some of the, uh, some of the key arguments and some of the shift that has occurred in, in both in the reasoning of Canadian courts. Uh, there have been a number of uh, there's been a number of significant uh, court decisions, but also in the in the philosophical debate in uh, in Canada. So, uh, let me start by observing that uh, bioethics probably didn't begin until the late 1960s. Now, when I say bioethics, I mean secular bioethics. Catholic bioethics had existed for a long time before that, but uh, the Hastings uh, Center was founded in the very late 60s, it was, I think 1969, and uh, we could take that as the kind of marker for uh, the beginning of uh, professional secular uh, medical, uh, medical ethics. My own uh, career in medical ethics uh, began a few years after the founding of the Hastings Center in 1972. I was asked to introduce a course in medical ethics for our uh, undergraduate uh, medical students at the University of Manitoba Faculty of Medicine. Just to put this in historical perspective, we were the first university, first medical faculty in Canada to introduce an ethics course. Indeed, I was regarded as something of a, an interloper. The idea that uh, you might have an ethicist in a hospital or an ethicist uh, gaining access to the uh, to the minds of medical students was still very new and uh, to many physicians and medical administrators, very strange. At all events, in, in 72, I was, um, I was asked to uh, create a course uh, in, uh, in medical ethics for our undergraduate medical students. And my colleagues thought, well, hey, if we're going to let this uh, philosopher uh, uh, teach our students, we'd better make sure that, he, that he's had some experience on the wards. So I uh, uh, was taken with a couple of my colleagues to do uh, ward rounds in our uh, large uh, teaching hospital, Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg. And I want to tell you a story about the very first patient we saw. Uh, I was given a, a physician's white coat, which I thought was somewhat deceptive. Uh, the patient wasn't asked for permission for I wasn't asked to give permission for me to be present. Uh, but I came in and 
uh, he ac accepted my presence and the the two doctors, uh, one was a, an oncologist and one a respirologist. This, this patient had uh, metastatic lung cancer. He was a pig farmer. And they chatted with him, asked him how he was feeling. Uh, and uh, then after a short chat, we went out into the hall to discuss his case. Uh, one doctor turned to the other and reported the, or they were sharing their impressions of the results of some recent tests. And apparently the tumor mass uh, in his lung had shrunk and they were uh, both feeling um, pleased and satisfied, congratulatory almost. In my naivete, I asked, so that, does that mean he's going to survive, live, uh, perhaps to be discharged from hospital? And the reply was no, uh, the tumor had uh, disseminated throughout his body. Uh, the shrinking of the tumor mass did not mean that he would survive. Well, I said, then presumably he'll experience uh, less pain, less suffering at the end of his life. No, that didn't follow either. Um, and when I uh, reflect back on, on this experience, I, it seemed at the time, and it still 48 years later seems to me bizarre. Why, sh why should physicians, why should clinicians take satisfaction and the shrinking of a tumor if it isn't going to improve either the length of life or the quality of life of the patient. Um, and I, I later discovered that this was not an uncommon, uh, not an uncommon phenomenon in modern medicine that uh, I suppose the French would call it uh, a déformation professionnelle, a kind of professional bias or blindness that somehow prevents you from seeing something really obvious. And in this case, the really obvious thing was that the uh, uh, oncology treatments, the powerful drugs that were making this patient very sick, weren't actually doing him any good, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the tumor has shrunk. And I still find that today, almost 50 years later in medicine, uh, doctors often take a lot of satisfaction from uh, reducing cholesterol levels, improving bone density, uh, lowering blood pressure, even in circumstances where the clinical benefits are really dubious and sometimes the adverse consequence is pretty serious. Uh, let me set that uh, to the side. Uh, my next question to them was, well, does the patient know that he's dying? And they looked uh, from one to the other and uh, the answer was, well, uh, we haven't told him he's dying, but we did tell him that he should be thinking of selling his pig farm because it was unlikely that he'd, uh, that he'd be able to go back to uh, uh, farming. This was still, um, I was a graduate student in Oxford and uh, it was an era of great paternalism in uh, British medicine. It was still an era of great paternalism in uh, North American medicine. Patients were often not told uh, accurately and honestly the uh, oblique prognosis. It was argued or it was widely believed that 
was wrong to take take away hope from a patient. And so information was titrated to the patients in the same way that drugs were by a paternalistic physician. Now, that was 1972, and uh, we were entering the era of consumers' rights, women's rights, children's rights. We can call it the age of autonomy. Uh, Today, patients are almost mugged with the truth. Uh, Relevant information is given to the patients, and it's widely believed that uh, patient autonomy has to be respected and that unless a patient indicates that he or she doesn't want to have... um, accurate and complete information on their case that uh, the default position is that patients should be told the truth so that they can plan their lives, say their farewells, make a will, uh, make amends to uh, people with whom they're, uh, uh, they've had difficult encounters in the past, and so on. Okay, that's sort of prelude by my very first uh, patient encounter. Uh, Patient autonomy wasn't really a very prominent value in Canadian medicine, and I'm going to uh, offer the opinion that it wasn't a very prominent uh, uh, value in North American medicine, and certainly not in British medicine uh, in the early 70s. That, That came later. So I taught my course to these uh, medical students, these undergraduate medical students. And one of the big issues we confronted was um, the phrase that was used at the time was pulling the plug, Uh, the withdrawal of uh, life support, uh, either because a patient had uh, requested uh, the discontinuation of uh, a ventilator, a respirator, dialysis, or in some cases, a patient who had pneumonia or some other bacterial infection might request, uh, might refuse an antibiotic. And, and so the question was, well, if if I pull the plug, if a physician uh, discontinues treatment, uh, knowing that a patient will die, the uh, withdrawal of life support or doesn't put the patient on life support in the first instance, could the patient, uh, is, is the patient guilty, uh, is the physician guilty of Uh, killing the patient? Might the physician be criminally responsible? Actually, there were uh, uh, items in the Criminal Code of Canada suggesting that uh, once life support had been initiated, if it were then discontinued, that this might count as a kind of homicide and that a a physician might be liable. And some physicians were, were very worried. Well, if I respect the patient's right some thought it was a right to uh, uh, to refuse medical treatment, either initially or to ask for it to be discontinued once it had been started in circumstances where death is uh, likely or even certain to ensue. Is the, fission, is the physician uh, morally blameworthy? Might they be held morally responsible? Might they even be held uh, criminally responsible? The withholding and withdrawal of life support in Canada in the 70s was very common. And indeed, uh, today, um, most Canadians die in hospital and almost all died in circumstances where they could have been assisted to live longer, either because life support is not being withdrawn or because it's not being initiated. So it's it's uh, truly uh, a common procedure 
in Canada today, but in 1972, it, it caused anxiety, caused uh, moral stress, and there was a lot of debate. And the point I want to make, uh, a draw to your attention and, and stress, and I'll come back to this later, is that the most common argument against pulling the plug or withholding medical treatment was that, uh, well, there were two arguments. Uh, one was that it would uh, expose the vulnerable to uh, abuse or exploitation. Uh, a patient uh, may be very anxious, maybe not entirely competent because of pain or because of drugs, uh, sedating them for the control of pain. And so patient wishes about end-of-life treatment, including the withholding and withdrawal of life support, were regarded as unreliable. And to protect vulnerable patients, it was argued, to avoid a slippery slope, it was necessary to uh, for physicians if you could get blood in a vein, regardless of what the patient wanted, you should put blood in the vein. If you could keep a patient alive, you should. Uh, sometimes the value of the sanctity of life was invoked. Um, sometimes it was uh, uh, fear of a slippery slope, uh, including the uh, desensitization or even brutalization of physicians. Hey, if I, if I pull the plug, what will that do to my commitment to the life and health of my patient is my first consideration, the first principle of, the, of most versions of the, the Hippocratic Oath. So the point I, to which I want to draw attention is that every argument being used today in England in opposition to legalizing either physician-assisted suicide or mercy killing was used in Canada in 1972 against the withdrawing or the withholding of life support. And in particular, the slippery slope argument. And what I think we know, because today I think it would be very difficult to find anyone in Canada or England or perhaps even America who would, uh, who would say that a patient does not have the right to insist that treatment, uh, life support not be initiated or to insist that having been initiated, it now be withdrawn. I don't think you'd really have to struggle to find anyone who would, who would oppose a patient's right uh, to refuse medical treatment, even in circumstances where the refusal would mean certain and very quick death. But there was great opposition to, it, to, to that, uh, to recognizing that right 50 years ago, uh, based on slippery slope arguments. The obvious conclusion is that not all slopes are slippery. And when I hear arguments against the uh, legalization of me uh, medically, uh, medical assistance in death uh, or the extension of this to patients who aren't already dying or the extension of it uh, via living wills to patients with Alzheimer's disease or its extension to uh, patients who are suffering as a result of uh, uh, mental illness, or to children, uh, in every case, it's the slippery slope argument that seems to be dominant. And, and I think having some historical perspective, uh, being able to recognize that uh, the slippery, the, the projected or predicted slippery slope really needs to be supported with empirical evidence. Well, we didn't have uh, all that much empirical evidence uh, at that time, but we have lots more we have lots more evidence today. Um, okay, um, 
Let me skip ahead. That was 1972, uh, my encounter with the pig farmer and my beginning to teach uh, biomedical ethics in a faculty of medicine. Uh, I want to skip ahead to 1992. Uh, in Canada, in the province of Quebec, a case arose on the same point, a young woman who uh, in her late teens uh, contracted Guillain Barre syndrome. So she was completely paralyzed. She was in hospital in the Hotel Dieu hospital in, uh, in Quebec. And after several years of uh, a life on the respirator in a state of total paralysis, she, she uh, requested uh, to be disconnected from the respirator. And the hospital was afraid because of the wording of the criminal code that they might uh, be criminally liable or that they might be civilly sued if they uh, disconnected her. Her name uh, was Nancy B, the initial B was used. Um, the judge in this case uh, ruled that she had a right to refuse medical treatment. Her testimony, by the way, was that she'd uh, uh, had several years of this, and uh, her exact words were uh, about life on her respirator were, this is, this is no life. And the judge respected her right to make that decision. Perhaps not the decision that every patient would make, but if it was the decision she made, she was a competent adult, and, uh, and she'd... that's the first and uh, almost the only legal case in Canada. I, I was surprised that the hospital didn't just uh, pull a plug when she requested it because it was so common, uh, but no one had ever taken it to court. So in 1992, we had, a, we had our first and uh, just about only decision on, the, on a patient's autonomous right to refuse medical treatment if, uh, if, if they regarded it as not in their best interest, regardless of what the, the hospital or the physicians or the nurses or their family might uh, might say. So that was 1992. Now, the very next year, we had a very famous case in Canada uh, that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's the decision, the Supreme Court decision was given in 1993. And it was called the Sue Rodriguez case. Sue Rodriguez had a degenerative neurological disease called ALS. So you'll all be familiar with, with ALS. And uh, she regarded, uh, she argued that uh, uh, she wasn't ready to die yet. Her quality of life was still good. Um, actually, I'm going to interrupt myself and I, I take us back to 1972 because something else of significance happened in 1972 that I should have mentioned. Uh, our prime minister at the time was uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, father of our current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, and uh, the Trudeau government changed the criminal code and uh, uh, decriminalized uh, suicide. So um, now this was a law that had long since fallen into desuetude. No one, no one who attempted suicide was, be, was being uh, prosecuted and sent to prison uh, if they survived. Uh, but Trudeau, um, in 1972, had suicide removed from the uh, from the criminal code, but left in the criminal code as a crime punishable uh, with up to 14 years in prison, uh, assisting, aiding, abetting, or counseling suicide. Now, let me. 
go back to Sue Rodriguez. That, that was 1972. Suicide was removed from the criminal code, but assisted suicide was, was still a serious criminal offense. In 1993, Sue Rodriguez, ALS patient, uh, argued that uh, she was able to take her own life at present, but uh, her quality of life was still uh, satisfactory for her. However, she knew that if she reached a point, and she knew what she thought she knew what that point would be, when that point would be, uh, uh, I recall her saying, if I can no longer hug my grandchildren without all my ribs cracking, at that point, I, I will be ready to end my life. On the other hand, by that point, I won't be able to take my own life. And uh, I, I should have a right to... Uh, physician assistance or to medical assistance in, in ending my life. Um, if an able-bodied person has this right, isn't it a violation of Canada's Charter of Rights, the equality provision, section 15? Uh, I'm being, I would be discriminated against, I am discriminated against by the criminalization of physician-assisted suicide compared to someone who's able-bodied because they have the right to and the ability to take their own life Whereas uh, if a physician is willing to help me, uh, that physician is uh, legally prohibited from doing so and would, fit, would face severe legal sanctions. Uh, her case went to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled against her in 1993. It was a very narrow decision, by the way. It was five to four against with uh, the woman who later became uh, Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, was part of the minority of four. But the majority of five, five cited uh, the sanctity of life, uh, placed great stress on, on the slippery slope argument. What they said was uh, they agreed that the government was violating her uh, right to life, liberty, and the security of the person. That's Article 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. They agreed that it was violating her equality of uh, uh, the equality provision, Section 15 of the Charter. But they said based on section one of the Charter of Rights, which specifies that none of the rights guaranteed by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is absolute, and they can all be uh, restricted, limited, or overridden if the government can demonstrate uh, that it's reasonable to do so in a free and democratic society. And what the Supreme Court ruled in 93 was uh, that the government's goal or objective, which was to protect vulnerable Canadians, again, we're back to the slippery slope argument, uh, was a worthwhile objective uh, for, for, the, um, for the government to violate your charter rights in Canada. They have to have a, an exigent, um, an urgent objective, and it has to be an important one. And the court said protecting vulnerable Canadians is such an objective. And they ruled that it was uh, reasonable for the government to uh, prohibit assisted suicide, even to someone uh, uh, as uh, clear and competent and articulate and thoughtful as, as Sue Rodriguez. The minority, uh, four judges on the panel of nine, uh, thought that it should have been uh, legalized. At all events, there was virtually no evidence that could be cited uh, either in favor of their uh, vulnerable people, uh, those who are disabled, those who are frail and elderly, those who are uh, uh, at the end of life, uh, uh, 
there was no evidence either that that these people uh, needed special protection or that this would protect them. But the court felt uh, that it it could that it uh, that it couldn't uphold Sue, Sue Rodriguez's uh, claim. Uh, and they found they found uh, they found against her. I want to remind you of something. 1993, neither physician-assisted suicide nor euthanasia was legal anywhere in the world. Actually, I'm going to bite my tongue. Uh, 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 both have been uh, legal in Switzerland since forever. And by the way, with virtually no say, uh, sorry, uh, physician-assisted suicide has been legal in, uh, in Switzerland since, um, since almost forever for a very long time. Uh, but Oregon uh, legalized it via its death, uh, 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 death with Dignity Act in uh, legalized physician-assisted suicide only in 1997. And it wasn't until 2002 that uh, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia were legalized in, in the Netherlands and in, uh, and in Belgium. So. Uh, sorry, I just come back. Switzerland legalized uh, assisted suicide, didn't have to be a physician, in 1942. So with the exception of Switzerland, when the Supreme Court of Canada uh, made its ruling in the Rodriguez case, there was no evidence, or very little evidence, it was mostly speculative about whether if we legalized physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, that uh, it would lead to a slippery slope and, the and, and great harm would come to uh, vulnerable Canadians. So uh, uh, that was the situation in uh, 1997. In uh, uh, 2015, the case for physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia came back to the Supreme Court. So uh, actually it was about 20 years later that it was argued uh, in the Superior Court of British Columbia and the Supreme Court uh, took the case, uh, ruled on the case in 2015. So 20 years after the Rodriguez case, uh, 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 a, a woman called uh, Lee Carter and another woman called Gloria Taylor and a couple of other plaintiffs challenged the law again. Uh, Lee Carter had gone to the uh, Dignitas Clinic in uh, Zurich with her mother, Kay. Uh, Kay Carter was, I think, 87, 88 years old, had, um, was in very severe uh, pain, and uh, uh, she had spinal stenosis. And uh, Lee Carter was afraid that she could have been uh, charged with the crime of assisting her mother's suicide because she accompanied her mother to uh, Switzerland from from British Columbia. There have been a number of cases in, in England, I know, where uh, there's been some question if I, if I go with an elderly relative to, uh, or a, uh, a suffering relative to uh, Switzerland, uh, will, I have, uh, will I have broken the law? At all events, uh, Lee Carter, the case daughter, brought this uh, constitutional challenge, as did Gloria Taylor, who, like Sue Rodriguez uh, 20 years earlier, uh, Gloria Taylor had had ALS. This time, the Supreme Court ruling, so we're talking about February of 2015, the Supreme Court ruling was unanimously in their favor. And I've read there were, I think, well over 100 expert witness statements. The testimony at, at trial in uh, Vancouver ran to thousands of pages. 
And interestingly, I couldn't find any reference to the sanctity of life. None. It had just disappeared. It was no longer part of the uh, part of the argument. Either the Crown, the Attorney General on behalf of Canada, uh, or the um, uh, the the plaintiffs. Uh, no one referred to the sanctity of life. Uh, the argument was entirely based on uh, whether whether we needed, in order to protect vulnerable patients, whether we needed an absolute ban or whether a regulatory approach with safeguards would be adequate. And this time there was lots of evidence and the trial judge, uh, uh, Madam Justice Lynn Smith, uh, looking at all the evidence from, from uh, expert witnesses brought on behalf of the plaintiff and, and the witnesses brought on behalf of the Crown, uh, she ruled that there was no evidence that the safeguards wouldn't work, that looking at, um, at what had happened in, uh, in Oregon, then in Washington State, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Switzerland, uh, uh, the slippery slope argument just wasn't valid. The Supreme Court in uh, February of uh, uh, 2015 accepted her uh, judgment on, on that evidence and ruled that although the government's objective was worthwhile, protecting vulnerable Canadians, uh, the, uh, the means adopted weren't proportional. There was no evidence that it was necessary to have a complete ban on physician-assisted suicide. And uh, uh, there was every reason to think that uh, the freedom and dignity of those who wish to have a medic medical assistance in death could be respected at the same time as safeguards could be put in place that would protect vulnerable Canadians. And the safeguards very briefly were uh, that the person requesting uh, medically assisted death, and I say me we say medically assisted rather than physician assisted because it, the assistance can be provided in Canada by a nurse practitioner uh, as well as by a physician. So uh, the uh, the argument was that uh, if it's ascertained that the patient making the request is uh, is competent, is uh, making a voluntary request, uh, is uh, uh, suffering uh, from a grievous and irremediable medical condition, is uh, suffering intolerably uh, in a way that can't uh, that can't be relieved, uh, then patients have have. Uh, have a right to make the request and to have their request granted. So that decision was reached by the Supreme Court of Canada in, uh, in 19, um, 1993, the Rodriguez case. In uh, 19, uh, and the, uh, I should say the, uh, the Supreme Court threw out the, uh, the criminal code provisions, but allowed them to stay and gave the government six months. Well, for various reasons, the government took more than a year. But in, in uh, June of uh, June the 17th of 2016, the government brought in its made legislation. And uh, here, uh, I think I, I want just very quickly to tell you about the uh, legislation uh, uh, that was brought in, uh, Bill C-14, uh, it's called. Um, in uh, June of 2016 by the uh, federal government. By the way, uh, for the Americans who may be participating in this, uh, criminal law in Canada is federal. 
uh, unlike uh, in the United States where, where each state can have its own criminal provisions. So um, we legalized in, uh, in uh, June of 2016 in Canada, we legalized both physician-assisted suicide and mercy killing. A number of American states now have legalized physician-assisted suicide, and none, to my knowledge, has legalized mercy killing. So in Canada, as in Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, both, are, uh, 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 both are legalized under the heading of uh, medical assistance in death. Okay. So the, uh, the legislation of the government was more restrictive, however, than the Supreme Court's legislation. And this has been a source of um, a stream of litigation, and the government's about to revise its uh, uh, revise its legislation. So let me just briefly describe uh, the uh, the contested provisions and uh, what's likely to happen next. So first of all, the Supreme Court did not say. Now this contrasts uh, for our, to the American participants in particular. Contrasts with the legislation in in, uh, in those states which have legalized uh, physician-assisted suicide. They did not say that you have to be dying. The Supreme Court didn't, uh, uh, but the government's legislation uh, as a requirement for eligibility said that death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Well, uh, as we knew at the time, uh, everyone had their own interpretation of what reasonable foreseeabi foreseeability means. Uh, did it mean that uh, you had to be dying imminently, let's say within six months or or a year, did it mean, uh, could it, if you had ALS, but might live as Stephen Hawking's death, Stephen Hawking's lived for many decades after his diagnosis. The average length of life is three, four, five years for ALS patients. Is that a reasonably foreseeable death uh, or not? Um, what if you're just very old? We had a, we had a case in the, the very next year after the legalization of Made in Canada, uh, there was a case called AB in Ontario involving uh, a, a patient with uh, a, a woman who had osteoarthritis, and the judge said her death was reasonably foreseeable because she was 77 years old. So you can see that uh, there were many different interpretations of what reasonable foreseeability meant, and there were constitutional challenges. People said it's discrimination against me. If I'm suffering intolerably, if I've got a, uh, a grievous medical condition that's irremediable, I should have the same right to medical assistance in uh, death as, uh, as a patient who is, uh, is imminently dying. Um, a case came up last year, 2019 in Quebec. Uh, actually, two cases came up. They were heard together, uh, Gladue and Truchon. And uh, Madam Justice Baudouin ruled that the reasonably foreseeable, uh, reasonable foreseeability requirement was unconstitutional. And she pointed out that the government uh, offered not a shred of evidence in defending the reasonable foreseeability clause that it was necessary to protect vulnerable Canadians. That is, yeah, she didn't think it was necessary and she felt it was a violation of the fundamental rights of uh, uh, both uh, Mr. Truchon and uh, Ms. Gladue. And she, she threw out the law 
she threw out a, a, a separate Quebec provision about uh, 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 your, a patient having to be at the end of life, and she threw out the federal uh, government's uh, Bill C-14 provision. So the government had to come, had to change the legislation, and we now have a new bill, uh, Bill C-7, uh, which has not passed through Parliament yet, and which has uh, partly eliminated the reasonable foreseeability uh, requirement. So it's not a requirement that your death be reasonably foreseeable under the proposed new legislation. So that, I suppose that counts as progress. Uh, but the government has now defined as they've kept reasonable foreseeability in the new in the new proposed legislation. They've kept it in this way: uh, if if your death is imminent, then um, there doesn't have to be the 10-day waiting period, and you don't have to be, I didn't mention, but uh, the original legislation uh, passed by the government required that you be, uh, that you had to be competent when you got your certificate entitling you to made, and you had to be competent at the point at which it was administered, which, which means that as uh, arose in one case, if you've got cancer and it's spreading to your brain, you might lose eligibility before you receive MAID. You couldn't afford to wait. And the same is true for some uh, Alzheimer's patients. Um, if, uh, if the Alzheimer's disease, if the dementia is advancing in an erratic and difficult to predict way, uh, you might get your certificate for MAID because you're competent at the moment, lose competence, and then you wouldn't be eligible. So uh, reasonable foreseeability is is gone, but if you aren't imminently in the new proposed legislation, but if you aren't imminently dying, the government now says you've got to be suffering intolerably in order to be eligible, and you, there has to be a 90-day a waiting period. In other words, the new proposed bill requires 90 days of intolerable suffering. For many Canadians, that's... Uh, that's a step backwards rather than a, a progressive step. So I, I, I'm sure it's going to be challenged in Parliament. We have a minority government. I don't know what uh, uh, what will happen with that provision. There's a lot of the government had a consultation. Several hundred thousand Canadians participated online just uh, a few months ago, and uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, Canadians want the eligibility criteria to be made more permissible. They think that you should be able, via an advanced directive, uh, to specify that you want a medically assisted death should you lose competence. That would help uh, early stage Alzheimer's patients who uh, many of them are having to opt for uh, death prematurely um, because if they wait, it's playing Russian roulette, they may lose competence and and may not be eligible. Final point, uh, the new proposed legislation uh, explicitly excludes uh, patients uh, for whom the underlying medical, the sole underlying medical condition that's causing their suffering is mental illness. And uh, many of my colleagues believe that uh, to rule out ab initio every case of mental illness as a potential case for a medically assisted death is discrimination against the mentally ill. That is, uh, many of my colleagues would argue, and I have a lot of sympathy with this, that uh, being mentally ill doesn't mean that you aren't 
that you're never competent to make medical decisions. And as a matter of fact, medically ill people are allowed to specify which treatments they want to be withheld or withdrawn uh, in the future, uh, but they're not allowed to uh, request uh, made under the, or they wouldn't be under the government's new proposed legislation. So let me just conclude by uh, flagging, uh, I think I just about used uh, the 45 minutes at which I was aiming, by flagging the areas of controversy in Canada today. So one is a reasonable foreseeability. Uh, should we uh, require uh, that, uh, that you have to be dying? Or if you're not dying, should we impose uh, a 90, day, 90 days of intolerable uh, uh, suffering? Uh, that, that's one controversial issue. Uh, second controversial issue has to do with uh, living wills, advanced directives. Should you be able uh, to request uh, medical, uh, medic medical assistance in death via an advanced directive, just as you can already do it uh, for the withholding or withdrawal of uh, life support? Uh, the government has made no provision in its draft, in its new draft legislation for uh, advanced directives. Uh, and uh, several hundred thousand uh, Canadians who have Alzheimer's are somewhat concerned that this, that the menu of end-of-life options in Canada uh, won't include, if the unless the government's le uh, new legislation is amended, won't include the option of an advanced directive for, uh, for MAID. Uh, there's also uh, some controversy about um, an age limit. Uh, in most American jurisdictions, you have to be at least 18 to be eligible for uh, physician-assisted death. The Supreme Court uh, said that uh, specified that you have to be an adult, but uh, and many people thought that adults could include a mature minor. And as as many of you will know, in both uh, uh, well, Belgium has eliminated any age limit, and the Netherlands has uh, allows children as as young as 12, between um, 12 and 16, if they're if their parents consent and if they're suffering intolerably and if they have sufficient uh, cognitive capacity uh, to have uh, to have a mercy killing administered. Um, under the government's legislation, uh, you have to be 18 and it looks as if uh, they're not going to allow the mature minor doctrine. In, in Canada, uh, virtually every province has mature minor legislation, which lets uh, children um, under 16 opt for abortions or birth control or make other important medical decisions on their own if the circumstances warrant and if they are sufficiently mature. Well, no matter how intense and unrelievable and hopeless your suffering is, uh, in Canada, the government uh, seems not prepared to, uh, to modify its, uh, its age limit. So we have issues to do with uh, Alzheimer's disease. We have uh, a lot of controversy around mental illness, whether someone with a mild or moderate mental illness who was still competent and who was suffering, if you meet all the conditions, notwithstanding your medical illness, so you're competent, um, you have a, a, good, a good appreciation of what your alternatives are, uh, you're suffering intolerably, your disease is irremediable, there is an issue uh, among psychiatrists whether you could ever say that a, a mentally ill person, uh, that their condition was irremediable uh, or hopeless. 
but if you met all those conditions and you were suffering intolerably and you were competent, uh, the government is proposing nevertheless to exclude you. So I think there's almost certain if this legislation passes, it's almost certain that there will be another constitutional challenge uh, at some point in the not too distant future. Okay, so that's my uh, very broad brushstroke uh, 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 painting of the last 50 years in Canada. And I'll, I'll now throw it back to Doug and, and who will throw it to you for, for your questions, comments, criticisms. All right, thank you, Arthur. Uh, so yes, do, do um, keep on putting in your questions. I see a couple of them there at the moment. I also have a couple that were sent in in advance. So um, maybe I'll start with those while people may be thinking about some of the other questions they want to add. Um, so what is, there's a series of questions kind of on a theme here. Um, so I'll start with the, I don't want to hit with too many questions all at once. So I'll start with the first one. So what protections, if any, ought there be for medical practitioners in Canada with conscientious objections to euthanasia? Okay. Do you want to give me several, and then I'll I'll, I'll, I'll give I'll, those on this on this theme. So like, there's probably related okay. to what you want to say. So, uh, so follow up on that really would be that should doctors be encouraged to leave the profession if they're yeah. unwilling? So to that that has them? been a uh, uh, for sure that's been a, a controversy. Uh, whether whether a physician who had uh, conscientious objections to uh, to made. Uh, could opt out or could could refuse. Uh, related to that, uh, we have a, in Canada a number of publicly funded, uh, religiously affiliated hospitals, Catholic affiliation, uh, and hospitals and nursing homes. And the issue has arisen, well, uh, if I'm uh, at the end of life and I'm living in a Catholic nursing home or I'm a patient in a Catholic hospital, uh, and I wish to be assessed for MAID, I wish to receive MAID uh, in the hospital or in the nursing home where I perhaps in the palliative care ward, uh, can the hospital opt out? Can a doctor or nurse or pharmacist opt out? Can a healthcare institution opt out? Now in Canada, that's largely a provincial matter. And uh, I, uh, I sat on uh, uh, the provincial territorial expert panel, which made a series of recommendations to uh, provinces and, uh, and territories in Canada as to how they should deal with this issue. And various colleges of physicians and surgeons have weighed in and again, each of them is provincial. So you'll get different recommendations in, in different provinces. Um, if you were the, except in rare circumstances, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, I think would not be obliged to provide made services to, to a patient. If you were the only physician or nurse in a remote area, let's say of Northern Canada, and uh, patients would be denied this health service, it's covered under our Medicare, program. Uh, if this is viewed as an important medically necessary service by this patient and they would otherwise be denied, would a physician nevertheless have the right to opt out? Uh, my own view is that, is that uh, if you have conscientious objections as a pharmacist to providing birth control 
uh, or uh, abortion pills. You shouldn't be the only practicing where you're the where you're the only pharmacy, and your conscientious object uh, principles mean that uh, people living in the area don't have access. So, uh, in most cases, uh, with the the exception I just mentioned, uh, physicians do have the right to opt out. But uh, more controversial, opt out from providing MAID. Uh, what, what if a patient asks the physician a question about MAID? Does the physician have an obligation to refer the patient to another doctor? And uh, here the provinces vary. Uh, the colleges of physicians and surgeons in different provinces have made uh, different rulings. Uh, I'll offer my own. Uh, Ontario requires a referral. Uh, my own view is, is that that's correct. Uh, patients, uh, the needs of patients have to trump the uh, ethical scruples of the physician, not that the physician should have to provide the service, but the physician should have to make the patient aware of how to gain access to the service if the physician isn't, or the nurse or the pharmacist isn't willing to provide it himself or, or, uh, or herself. The issue of public hospitals uh, publicly financed hospitals uh, that are religiously affiliated or nursing homes. Uh, here I have um, a very little sympathy for uh, those uh, Catholic and uh, Jewish and other uh, nursing homes that have refused even to allow patients to be assessed. Remember, this is where they're living. These are mostly, in, I should have mentioned in Canada, about 1% of uh, all deaths are um, at the moment, are uh, via mate. Uh, in Oregon, it's a small fraction of one percent. In the Netherlands and Belgium, it ranges between three and and four uh, percent. Um, uh, mostly in Canada, as in other jurisdictions, the patients who request and receive mate have end stage cancer, metastatic cancer, or they have a chronic degenerative diseases such as such as ALS. So uh, that's the overwhelming. And if, if you happen to be living in a nursing home, maybe the only one in your region that's Catholic affiliated or Jewish affiliated or Muslim affiliated or evangelical Protestant affiliated, uh, it seems to me a denial of your fundamental human rights, your constitutionally protected rights, uh, uh, that you can't be assessed or can't have this can't have the made procedure where you're living in your home. But we've had cases of patients uh, sent out of the hospital, one of whom died in an ambulance on the way to uh, uh, an office where she was going to receive um, an assisted death. I find that very undignified. Uh, at all events, the regulations uh, differ from, for, from each province and from each provincial college. Thank you. Uh, so, so this is a slightly different one. Um, so what can UK supporters of assisted dying learn from the Canadian experience? So I don't know if you're in a position to, to, to say, but perhaps uh, you have something on that. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I, you know, I faithfully read The Guardian every day and have for years. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been following the debate, and it strikes me that uh, popular support for uh, assisted, physician-assisted suicide and mercy killing is as high in the United Kingdom, or maybe I should say 
uh, in England, uh, I'm not so sure about Northern Ireland, um, uh, Scotland or Wales, but I, I imagine Northern Ireland might be an exception. It's as high in the UK as it, as it is in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Oregon, or in Canada. I mean, the levels of support are uh, over 80%, depending on the exact question and how it's worded. Uh, there's overwhelming support in Canada, as there was for decades before it was legalized. So my first piece of advice is um, acquire a fundamental charter of rights and freedoms that can overturn laws that are unduly restrictive of uh, individual liberty and uh, unequal treatment of people who are unable to take their own their own life. So uh, it's because of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that these court cases have have uh, have been effective in forcing our legislators. Because I, I I'm certain that if it hadn't been for the Carter case in February of 2015, we would not have had Bill C14. In, in on June the 17th of 2016. Uh, in particular, the government uh, in power in 2015 was a conservative government. It was ideologically hostile. And even though the Supreme Court gave them six, uh, gave them uh, only a certain length of time to change the law, they stalled and they stalled. And then a new liberal government came in and they weren't ready to move immediately. So, so we had to wait about a year and a half after the Supreme Court threw out the legislation, but I think having a fundamental charter of rights and freedoms has made the struggle much easier in Canada. In Britain, I think that there would just have to be um, a very effective campaign and sometimes a single case can catalyze public opinion uh, and mobilize it in such a way that the government of the day feels compelled to act. You, you, you need a, a, a liberal, uh, Home Secretary, such as Roy Jenkins, with respect to uh, the legalization of um, of uh, 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 homosexuality in Britain. I mean, it's going to be that kind of sea change. Uh, uh, I think public opinion is very supportive. Uh, the issue then becomes a political one: how you how you translate that public support into uh, into legislation. So, okay, thank you. So, uh, I just got another. You can probably answer this fairly quickly because it just kind of expands slightly on the first question. Uh, you mentioned these nursing homes, some of these Catholic nursing homes that have been you know, conscientiously objecting. But to what extent would you say has made been accepted by health professionals in Canada in general? Are, are there are there many people conscientiously objecting, or is it is that is a fairly small minority? I saw an opinion poll. Uh, and not so long ago, uh, that suggested that uh, over 80% of physicians are supportive of, uh, uh, actually it's between 80 and 85%, and it didn't matter which, I mean, they broke, the, the overall level of support for MAID was um, 80% or, or over, and different subcategories, uh, but even amongst Catholics in Canada, it was over 80%, and amongst physicians, it's clearly over 70%. That, uh, who support the legalization. Now, the number who participate or feel comfortable participating, uh, I think initially will be comparatively low. So that may lead to problems of access. But uh, over time, uh, I can tell you in the, in, in the Netherlands, uh, if you had a patient with, you know, if you ask uh, Dutch physicians 
whether a patient with metastatic cancer who's suffering terribly uh, should have the right to uh, euthanasia. It'd be difficult to find any who would say no. In Canada, it would be higher, but it would be somewhat small and it would be confined almost exclusively to uh, a religious minority. And even amongst you know, Catholics or Orthodox Jews or uh, fundamentalist Protestants, um, support for uh, the right of patients to, uh, to have made as an option at the end of life uh, seems uh, very high. By the way, so I, I could have mentioned this earlier, but didn't. One of the options we've had in Canada long uh, years before the legalization of uh, medically assisted death was the option of uh, sedation to unconsciousness, uh, which is sometimes called terminal sedation and sometimes called palliative sedation. Well, thousands of Canadians who are suffering intolerably at the end of life have had the option, even without the legalization of, uh, of uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, have had the option of uh, terminal sedation. Uh, they are sedated to unconsciousness. Uh, uh, food and water, hydration and nutrition are withheld, and the patient dies in about two weeks. That also hastens death. And interestingly, and I just sort of throw this out for people uh, as something that deserves reflection. In Canada, we have virtually no safeguards protecting vulnerable people when it comes to the withholding or withdrawal of life support. We have virtually no safeguards when it comes to sedation to unconsciousness. We have virtually no safeguards when it comes to uh, a kind of palliative care that might involve dramatically increasing uh, the level of analgesia uh, to a point where uh, you might have a respiratory collapse or cardiac arrest. Uh, but when it comes to physician-assisted suicide or medically-assisted suicide or euthanasia, we, we have very elaborate, complicated uh, hoops through which a patient has to jump. Uh, I mean, I would ask the question, if, if, uh, if a patient who's suffering greatly, whether dying or not, uh, has a right to refuse dialysis if, they're, if they have end-stage renal failure, they have the right to refuse a respirator to or to have a respirator disconnected or to refuse an antibiotic if they have a bacterial infection, knowing that death is certain, if all those rights are established and have not led to great abuses of vulnerable people. Oh, I've got to interrupt myself again. Just one other quick point before the next question. Uh, the, uh, we've got only preliminary, we've, uh, MAID has been legal in Canada for, it'll be uh, uh, four years on June the 17th. So not quite four years. As in Oregon, interestingly, the people who are using MAID are disproportionately the wealthier and better educated and actually somewhat younger Canadians. So the fear, the slippery, the big slippery slope fear was that the numbers would expand dramatically. That hasn't happened in Oregon or in Canada. Uh, and that the, they would, it would, uh, that MAID would be used as a way of bumping off racial minorities, uh, frail elderly people, uh, the poor, I can see that that would be a concern in the States 
where uh, lack of health insurance. In Canada, oh, and another fear was that MAID would mean a neglect of um, starving of funds for palliative care. So palliative care physicians were one subsection of the medical community that was previously very strongly opposed to MAID. They felt it was almost an insult to their them professionally. What? We can't control? Of course we can control all pain. Uh, but more important, they felt that it would be an alter that made would be an alternative to good palliative care. Well, in Oregon, virtually everyone who receives physician-assisted suicide uh, is either in hospice or getting palliative care, and the same is true in Canada. This is not an option for people who don't have access to palliative care, and and it, it's actually led to the uh, legalization of medical assistance in death has in most European countries and in most uh, North American jurisdictions has led to an improvement in palliative care. So the slippery slope that was forecast at the bottom of which would be no money for palliative care instead will bump you off cheaply and quickly. Uh, that's just been empirically falsified everywhere. So, so the, so the um, palliative care uh, doctors have come around to it then given the way it's unfolded? I haven't seen a recent polling of palliative care doctors, but anecdotally, the answer is yes. And a number of palliative care physicians are participating on the made committees that are uh, both uh, approving of requests and, and administering uh, made in Canada. So uh, I, I, I couldn't guess how the, I, I, I'm almost certain that the percentage you approve or at least are willing to accept are no longer opposed uh, has uh, has gone up, but I but I I, I, I can't say by by how much. Thanks. Okay, good. Uh, so uh, what? So you said there were two rationales for restriction: sanctity of life and protection of the vulnerable. But the first seems to have been dropped. There's no mention of sanctity of life. Um, in, in the most recent discussion for the legislation. So, can, so the question is, can the new legislation reasonably be justified on the basis of protection of the vulnerable? Or has, have they in fact smuggled sanctity of life implicitly into the justification kind of in the background? <laughs> yeah, well, um, let me just say a word about sanctity of life. Uh, I if I had a dollar for every uh, radio, TV, and newspaper debate in which I've participated over the last 50 years, uh, they virtually all, until the last few years, involved uh, invocation of the sanctity of life. And the reason I think this has faded, at least it's not explicitly invoked any longer, is because it's very widely accepted now that. Uh, we live in a multi-faith, multi-ethnic, pluralistic society, and it's very difficult to find uh, a non-religious, non-sectarian uh, justification for the sanctity of life. Uh, it's almost all the idea that human life is sacrosanct and must never be violated uh, is, is just very difficult. It's very difficult to find a basis for that other than a religious basis. And I think that's the reason why uh, it's not being e explicitly invoked. 
a respect for life is being invoked. And indeed, uh, going back to the, the, uh, the Carter case in uh, 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada in its unanimous decision in favor of May invoked respect for life. Uh, that's Article 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a right to life, liberty, and security of the person. So they invoked respect for life in justifying assisted death. And the argument was that absent the legalization of, of uh, assistance in death, patients would have to kill themselves and they might have to do so prematurely. And indeed, we've, we've had cases in Canada of patients who've tried to bring themselves under the MAID legislation, uh, well, either been ruled it, um, not eligible because they were, their death wasn't reasonably foreseeable, so they've starved themselves to death. Or in one or two cases, they've starved themselves to the point where their death was reasonably foreseeable, and then they were eligible for MAID. Now, that seems a kind of... Um, the legislation has this cruel implication, and, and uh, the, the uh, federal government in the Truchon case that I mentioned earlier, uh, Truchon, glad you, uh, where Justice Baudouin threw out the reasonable foreseeability clause, the government of Canada said, well, hey, if you uh, said to uh, uh, Jean Truchon and Nicole Gladue, they, the government said, well, you can take your own lives or you can stop eating and drinking. And uh, the, uh, uh, the judge in that case uh, was uh, really offended by the government. These don't seem like adequate alternatives. Now, uh, uh, Doug, uh, there was a second part to that question that I haven't addressed yet, and I'm not sure I understood it. Uh, is, is sanctity of life being smuggled in how? Uh, well, I'm not. Sure. I, I, yeah. No. Sorry. I, I don't know. I've also been I've been <laughs> skipping forward and reading some of the other questions to try and see what the next one will be. So I'm like dividing my attention and uh, in a okay. troublesome well, way. Put that put that one aside. And let's go on to the next question. Yeah. Um, well, here's, here's a here's a straightforward question. Not straightforward to answer, probably, but I, I think it gets us into an interesting other area. How uh, is intolerable suffering? being defined, that's it. Yes. Um, so uh, the uh, legislation under Bill C-14 used a number of phrases that were um, ambiguous and vague. I've already talked about um, reasonable foreseeability. Uh, irremediable is another, uh, you know, the, the disease the uh, medical condition has to be irremediable, but what does that mean? Uh, so, for example, if a, if a patient with cancer uh, uh, who's tried several oncology drugs refuses to try yet another one, could you say, well, you, therefore, we can't say it's irremediable because you're not going. Or if a patient declines what could potentially be a life-saving surgery. So what the government made clear and what the Supreme Court earlier made clear in the Carter case was that uh, irremediable means uh, not able to be cured by a treatment which is acceptable to the patient. And a similar uh, interpretation has been given to intolerable suffering. Uh, it has to be 
uh, suffering that is intolerable to the patient. Okay, so I'm happy to kind of... Uh, sorry, to the... I want to say one other word. Uh, uh, in order to be eligible under the, the new draft legislation that hasn't passed yet in Canada, uh, you have to be eligible, you have to be suffering in, intolerably. Now, if intolerably means literally you can't tolerate it, then no one would, I mean, then you'd have then then your choices would be stupefy yourself with drugs, so something like terminal sedation in which case you wouldn't be eligible for MAID because you wouldn't be, you'd no longer be competent. So intolerable has been interpreted as meaning uh, severe rather than literally in, intolerable. Right, I mean, also if you say it's indexed to what the patient experiences, you could get these uh, weird situations where the, the patient claims it's intolerable, but it just doesn't seem like there's anything going on at all. And I'm, you know, I guess the cases where you might get close to that, although not exactly that, is where you have very serious intractable depression. Um, of course, you can believe that there is suffering going on in those cases, so they're not. It's not totally weird, but I'm assuming that's um, part of what was behind the idea of having this 90 days. That you kind of want to, is is the thinking. This is what I was wondering: Are they? Why would they ask for 90 days? Is it something to do with wondering to see if it, if it maybe might just get better or maybe it will go away or something? Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. good question. So let me just reiterate, uh, the, the new draft legislation, explicit patients whose uh, suffering results from mental illness. Right. So okay. if your suffering was a result of depression or bipolar disorder or um, whatever it might be, you wouldn't be eligible, you're just ruled out. Uh, if, uh, so, who is the so who is the government trying to protect with the 90 days? Uh, who are the vulnerable patients who are suffering intolerably, but will be forced to wait uh, almost three months before they can uh, be relieved? So the, the categories of patients would be the following. Um, you've had a crippling accident and haven't had much time to adjust, or a sudden onset of a disease, uh, which is very disabling and perhaps uh, uh, involves a lot of suffering. So the government wants to make sure that no one, um, the government wants to make sure that everyone has a chance to adjust to their, what could be new life circumstances that, that the suffering has to be enduring. Now, that was part of the original legislation, but in the government originally introduced a 10-day waiting period, but it had initially a reasonably foreseeable death clause. So if you're if you're already dying, we'll make you wait 10 more days. Now that you don't have to be dying, they're saying you have to wait 90 days. Uh, in order to be eligible. Also, I think the government assumed that mental illness as the sole underlying disorder, as the exclusive underlying medical condition, would be ruled out by the death reasonably foreseeable because there aren't many medical conditions where death is 
reasonably foreseeable. There are a few. I suppose anorexia nervosa might be might be one. So they're thinking of of an accident victim or the sudden onset of a disease or dramatic change in a person's circumstances, which involves uh, intense suffering, which they are finding unendurable, but which over time they might uh, they might adjust to, they might find uh, acceptable. Um, that I think is uh, the category of vulnerable patient they they have in mind. Yeah, sorry, yeah, I forgot about the condition that doesn't apply to mental illness. <laughs> just, just kind of counterintuitive, but uh, yeah, thank you. Um, okay, here's one on the slippery slope. So about your point on slippery slope arguments, you said we need empirical evidence for it, whether the slope is slippery or not. But one might reply that once we have the evidence that there is a slippery slope, then that's too late because we're already down the slope. So they might say that a reasonable risk of a slippery slope is enough to add restrictions. So what do you think about well, the, um, uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom says that the government can infringe your liberty or your other guaranteed charter rights, but only if it's reasonably dem demonstrable or demonstrably reasonable in a free and democratic society. So the burden of proof, if the government's proposing to limit your liberty, the burden of proof is on the government. Now, I understand this question is asked, well, so how, how high should the burden be? How much evidence should they be? And I don't think they would be required to provide uh, a, a level approaching certainty, but they'd have to have good evidence that, uh, uh, that vulnerable people were being uh, abused, exploited, uh, or, or harmed. Keep in mind, and the point I'm going to make now was, was made many years ago by Mary Warnock, British philosopher, some of you will have will know, will have known. She said, it's not just, it's not enough just to look at the harm that may come to uh, 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 vulnerable patients or vulnerable people. You've got a lot, you've also got to look at the harm that may come to those who are uh, suffering intensely, dying or not dying if it's a chronic degenerative disease and who are in, experiencing intolerable pain and whose uh, desire or need to die with dignity will be sacrificed. So you've got potential harms on both sides. We know for certain that, uh, that there are thousands, uh, perhaps tens of thousands of dying patients in Canada whose deaths are very ugly indeed and not at all what they would have wanted. As Gloria Taylor said, I want my uh, in the Carter case, uh, she was one of the plaintiffs, as she said, I want my death to be, to reflect the values by which I live. I want to die with dignity. I want to die on my terms. So if you uh, opt for, if you think this, the, that there, it will be, or maybe some harm to vulnerable patients, and if you've got some evidence that there may be patients who will wrongfully die, because you've legalized MAID, that's nevertheless the proportionality test, consequentialism or utilitarianism, says that that harm, even if you had some evidence that there would be such harms, has to be weighed against the harm that would be caused if you don't permit people 
to have uh, certain options at the end of their lives. And there has to be, if you're going to prohibit people's exercising their, their freedom of choice in the menu of options available at the end of life, you've got to have good evidence. Now, how good? It's a matter of judgment. It's a matter of balance. Okay, so, um, so back to another one about uh, professional attitudes to euthanasia. So in the UK, progress on physician-assisted dying has been blocked by conservative professional organisations such as the British Medical Association. Has that been true in Canada also? Do you think it's common in other countries generally? And if so, why is this happening, given what you've said about the opinions of individual doctors? Yes. Well, um, isn't it the case, you'll have to tell me if this is true, Doug, that, that uh, uh, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons in Britain recently changed its position from being opposed to being neutral? Uh, I wish I could tell you that. I'm afraid I don't have the answer on okay, that. Okay, so uh, I, I think initially phys, uh, colleges of physicians and surgeons and, and other uh, professional medical bodies uh, were very wary of uh, of uh, medical medically assisted uh, death. I see. Uh, Sorry, just to interrupt you there briefly, I see uh, uh, Don Wilkinson's just chipped in to say that yes, you're correct on on that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, th I think medical opinion can and does shift. When public opinion shifts, the doctors who are ordinary folks as well, uh, their views also shift. And in Canada, uh, medical opinion is now very strongly in favor. It usually lags behind. And I think it lags behind because uh, doctors... Um, Fear, fear being involved. I mean, I'll be the one who has to give the lethal injection or who has to hand the lethal pill to the patient to, to uh, swallow. And there's a, there's a feeling that I'll be killing my patient. All I would say is that that's the sentiment that I very widely heard from physicians 48 years ago when I began working in a hospital and working in a medical school with respect to a patient's asking for the plug to be pulled. The doctor said, but I'll be killing the patient. I can't do that. Uh, the Hippocratic Oath says I will not administer poison, when, although there's a lot of controversy about what that really meant at the time of Hippocrates. Um, uh, so traditional physician ethics has regarded death as a defeat. I think modern physician ethics is coming to recognize that Putting the best interest of your patient first doesn't necessarily mean prolonging your patient's life after that life has become, in the patient's eyes, more burdensome than beneficial. And I think the, the uh, development of palliative care as an important specialty in medicine has helped to change attitudes, though not necessarily the attitudes of palliative care physicians or not as rapidly as some others. But the I. The idea that the doctor is devoted to life, to life, to prolonging life as the primary goal, maybe as the sole goal, that used to be much more common than it, than it is now. I, I, I think persuading uh, the medical profession in England may be like pushing a door that's already mostly or partly 
opened. I think doctors are much more respectful today than they were 50 years ago of patient autonomy. It's the patient's right to decide from a menu of treatment options. Your obligation as a physician to inform the patient what the options are. And it's the patient's right to decide. And if the patient decides not to prolong life, it's your obligation to uh, provide an easeful death, the kind of death that the patient would want. Now, some patients will value suffering at the end of life. Uh, uh, perhaps some Christian patients uh, place a big value on, on suffering at the end of life. That's their choice. Thank you. Yeah, so, just so Dom, Dom just says that the BMA is still thinking. They're officially opposed, uh, but they've recently surveyed uh, their members. So uh, things might be shifting there. Oh, time for me one or two more. So what one here? So what cases do the made committees turn down in general? Yeah, that's such a good question, and uh, the evidence is very fragmentary. I mean, there have to be reports, but uh, we don't have a national body collating all the reports and analyzing them. Uh, uh, the the prime reason for uh, the prime reasons, the two criteria uh, that seem most frequently when applied to have resulted in a negative decision are, first of all, competence. So you can imagine that the population applying for MAID is often frail, elderly, dying, sedated. Um, and so uh, competence may well be in question. By the way, same the same difficulty in assessing competence prevails uh, when it comes to uh, a living will, an advanced directive, right? Were they, are they competent? Uh, uh, is this really what they want? Were they adequately informed? So competence is one. Does the patient have the capacity? And uh, patients who may have a lethal Ill, uh, disease, but also a mental illness, it may be questionable whether they uh, whether they're whether they have adequate capacity. So that's one uh, has been one of the main reasons for, as far as I can tell from preliminary data. And the second has been the reasonable foreseeability clause. It's interpreted very differently. So uh, we have the AB case that I mentioned in two thousand and seventeen in Ontario, where a patient with osteoarthritis was said, to satisfy the reasonable foreseeability, a natural death is reasonably foreseeable because they were 77 years old. So there have been so many different ways of interpreting. Uh, uh, some patients with ALS or who've been diagnosed with ALS or diagnosed with uh, Huntington's disease, uh, their deaths may be years away or Alzheimer's disease, and yet their death, what they've got is a lethal disease. So does that count? And some physicians and some made committees in some provinces have been very conservative. They're worried that the teeth of the law may bite into their rear end if they uh, provide a made certificate or if they provide, uh, if they administer made to a patient who wasn't imminently dying. Everyone feels confident about the patient with metastatic cancer who has a very short time to live and is suffering intolerable. Not everyone feels competent about patients with chronic degenerative diseases. 